Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Oksana Stowe, for the introduction to our guest today, Susan Lin. Susan is a partner at Felix Capital. Felix Capital is one of the premier consumer investors based in the UK. I mean, some of their investments include Goop, Oatly, Peloton, SellerX. We discuss what consumer-driven means, how it's spilled over to B2B, the difference when scaling a European company versus one that's based in the US, what is a real competitive advantage for a company today? Why Felix recently raised 600 million and much, much more. I love this conversation. Without further ado, here's Susan. Susan, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Or this evening, I guess, your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, 4.34 here in London. Um, actually, uh, it's a bit of a gray day, but we've had a string of really nice weather, so I can't complain. It's it's about as nice as it gets here in the British summer. That's good. And still, and I would consider 4.30 still day, still part of the day. Yeah, yeah, so definitely still part of the day. It actually, well, I was going to say in, in winter, it gets dark really early, but in summer, it actually goes light until 10 p.m., so it's really nice. So what was your initial attraction? Like, how did you get started in entrepreneurship and venture capital from the very beginning? Yeah, so it, it's funny, actually, I was I was recently um, thinking, I, I had a, a little boy about two and a bit years ago, and I was reflecting a little bit more about this. And it's actually a funny story, because um, I have to actually credit my parents quite a lot. So my parents were, well, they were sort of um, Chinese immigrants to Australia, and originally were researchers, but then they kind of caught the startup bug in the original 90s uh, internet era. So they were using computers for their own research, and then they got really interested about the, you know, the potential of the internet. And then um, they became sort of serial entrepreneurs. So they actually started one company together, uh, which was pretty... I don't know that I would recommend that. It was a pretty bold move. But as a result, I was, you know, I was sort of surrounded, like as a kid growing up, especially when I was like, I think a, a teenager, I met their like early co-founders, their first initial investors. I just thought it was a really interesting journey that they've been on. I sort of saw also the dot-com boom and bust, actually. And then they, um, for a period, um, ran their company in Hong Kong and then Shenzhen, which is this tech city. Now it's this huge metropolis in China. But I sort of also got to witness a bit firsthand just like that incredible incredible transformation um, that took place over you know, five, 10 years in China, where sort of tech just, just sort of disrupted and transformed everything. And so I think that that sort of got me initially kind of interested in it. And then I took a very roundabout route. I went to, I went to the U.S. for school, for college. I then consulted, uh, did consulting at a company called Bain, Bain Company in San Francisco, uh, worked with actually a lot of tech companies there. Also a couple stints at, at different startups, two different startups in the U.S. as an operator, both on the product management side and on the biz dev side. And then when it came to London about five, six years ago, I got recruited to be an investor, previously at a different fund by a former colleague of mine. And then I discovered sort of really enjoyed investing. And so, yeah, now I'm here. What are some of the differences and what led you down when you got recruited to get into investing? You know, what was the opportunity? Why did you decide to maybe dip your toes in the other side of the table, so to speak? And what's been like the biggest learning or change from from operating? 
So I was always, I guess I had always been sort of interested in going into investing. I just had to sort of assume that that was something people did much later in life. I sort of saw, you know, the VC community is, is, is a pretty small, as you know really well, it's a pretty small ecosystem, which I think if you are an outsider, it's kind of hard to get in. And I always assumed like I would have to like really earn my stripes and, you know, be either a successful founder or be like a long term, you know, senior operator who spent like, you know, 20 years building a company and then sort of pivot into investing. But then I got recruited by a former colleague to join um, a fund based in London called HG Capital, which mostly does growth equity and private equity. And it was just sort of work in, in their um, in their tech um, investing um, team and was sort of quite quite curious to check it out. I mean, it was a, it was a large, much larger organization, a big fund. And so, you know, operating in a, in a different way. But uh, I thought it would be, it's always one of those things where I wanted to really prove the hypothesis to see if I enjoyed it. And so as the opportunity arose, just felt like I couldn't say no. And then when I was there, you know, really, really enjoyed the work you know, and, um, and worked with, got to work with some really interesting companies, but found that overall the stage and the, and the size of the fund was just not, not really a fit for me. Uh, it was just much later stage, more mature companies, which were sort of less open to change. I would say much less sort of disruptive. And then, you know, also the way the company itself operated was just a very sort of structured behemoth. What made you excited about working with younger companies, earlier stage companies, and what I guess ultimately led you to Felix. I will sort of put my hand up and say I'm a bit of a failed founder. Um, so I, I tried to start <laughs> to start off when I was living in SF and none of them really got off the ground properly. And I, I learned a lot through the journey, but I, you know, I discovered that, you know, I, I think it's good to learn the, what you're capable of, you're not capable of. And I, I found it a pretty lonely journey, actually. I think for me, it was sort of getting back into, I, you know, I love the excitement. And, I, and when I joined the two startups, they were also at series A stage. So I love the excitement of being in an early stage company when you're figuring things out, when you're testing the product, when you're, you know, figuring out your go-to-market channels. Um, and when, you know, there's just, you're in, in that sort of building test and learn mode. But then I also, I, found that personally, I sometimes, if I'm doing something myself, I, I find it difficult to persevere alone. And so when you're on the other side, you have multiple portfolio companies you're working with and also, you know, your own team that you're collaborating with. And it's just a, it's a very different dynamic. And I, so I feel like I get to, I get the taste of that journey, but, but not sort of having to, to do it by myself. That's awesome. That makes a lot of sense. Why in Felix, you decided to raise such a large fund, and what were what's maybe some of the opportunities that you're that you're seeing within as it relates to consumer? Yeah, it's a great question. So, so just as maybe as a bit of background for some of the listeners, Felix, we're actually a pretty young fund firm ourselves. We, we do think of ourselves as a startup or a scale up. And that was part of what really excited me about joining the team here. So we're, we're just raised our, four, our fourth set of funds. When we started in 2015, our first fund, it was, yeah, it was quite a bit small. It's 120 million or so. And the latest fund is 600. We obviously have seen over the, the last few years, there's just been sort of the, the fact that like we typically, a lot of our investment is at the early stage side. Um, so we saw sort of two challenges. One is even at the early stage, you know, rounds were getting larger, you know, initial investment sizes were, were getting bigger. And so there was sort of an increase um, commensurate with that on, on the fund side that was required. And the other thing is that we just saw, you know, a lot of exciting companies in our own portfolio really break out and we didn't quite have enough reserves to really follow on. And so, you know, we might, or maybe we could, could follow on the next round, but we couldn't do the Series C round or Series D round. We really have um, a strong conviction to try to back, you know, 
uh, companies as, as long as we can and, and partner for the long term. And so this time we've, we've been able to sort of raise a larger fund, which, you know, in large part will be used to reinvest in our own portfolio company. Second part of your question in terms of like opportunities with, within, you know, we, we, we started out being sort of very thematically focused, particularly around the consumer lifestyle, which actually doesn't mean we only invest in consumer. We, we probably invest in 60, 70 percent that are more consumer facing you know, products or brands or platforms. And then the other 30, 40% is more um, B2B software tools that are either enabling sort of this e-commerce and consumer revolution or sort of consumerized workplace tools. But we still see that, you know, there's a huge opportunity there, you know, across both Europe and, and the US. And we're quite, we look at things quite globally that hasn't been tapped into. So, so super excited to, to continue to double down in those areas. What we've seen from, because of course, I mean, Felix is very well known um, as being, you know, one of the few, you know, very consumer heavy funds, especially as you said, on like the lifestyle, you know, investing in, you know, consumer brands and what have you. And what I've kind of seen is when funds are raising that, you know, have been maybe known for investing in consumer brands, larger and larger and larger amounts, they actually maybe make a pivot or an evolution, as we call it, to other categories. As you move forward, since, you know, 600, that's a lot of money. How much of an emphasis now are you still putting on consumer brands? The way we define brand is not really sort of the the narrow sense of like a, a D to C brand where, you know, you're, you're selling a, a new product online to consumers. I, I guess, you know, when we think about brand, we think about it more broadly. It could be, you know, I mean, some of the, even the, the big sort of B2B companies, whether it's Stripe or Slack or Canva, like that is a brand as well. So I think we, we see brand more, more broadly. But I think, you know, on that, we still, you know, that that is a big, big thesis, part of our thesis, which is that, you know, really, I think a lot of companies or a lot of funds rather would, would sort of put a strong emphasis around tech mode or, or around sort of, IP mode or even data modes. And I think for us, actually, we see the brand mode as being hugely strong. I mean, if you look at sort of some of the most valuable companies still today, you know, whether it's Apple, whether it's Tesla, like so much of that intangible on their balance sheet, that intangible value is tied up in their brand. And so we, we see that as, as hugely important. I think we'll, you know, we'll continue to invest across sort of different areas around the consumer product side or, or platform side, you know, so from digital health to fitness to um, we've, we're looking at consumer um, financial wellness tools. Um, to sort of e-commerce marketplace platforms. Um, it'll be pretty broad, but I think definitely always with a modern brand sort of element to it. And actually, we one of the investments that we worked on earlier this year, which we, we didn't do a big announcement on, but actually it's a great um, LA-based brand, which you still is a, a D2C brand, actually. Um, it's a company called Outplace. I don't know if you... You know, yeah, our place, of course. Yeah, of course. They're great. Of course. Um, so, a really fantastic mission driven team, you know, really wanting to bring people together and cultures together through, you know, the kitchen and dining table and building just these beautiful, accessible, and also diverse um, kitchen products. So, you know, I think a lot of people would probably have said, you know, that they are shifting focus away from those types of investments. But I think when, when executed really well, we were still super excited about them. Yeah, it seems like the bar has just been raised, right, for consumer brands. And I imagine, too, that you're thinking on the consumer brand side of things, maybe working in retail is a must factor. I know, I think our place isn't in retail, but maybe that's, you know, part of the plan, you know, going forward. Um, since, you know, e-commerce, it's obviously grown quite considerably, the penetration during COVID, but it's still very much the minority when it comes to sales, right, in retail. So you also said something, well, you said many things very interesting, but one of the things that I thought was, quite fascinating that I'll to dive deeper on is brand moat. I know that you said that, you know, other investors, I mean, I'm sure that 
that you're also looking at what is your maybe technology, what's a technology moat, or you know, if it's a marketplace, does it have network effects? Or if it's a SaaS business, like what's the churn rate and kind of the cohorts that kind of come with that. But when you're evaluating company, how do you assess if they have a true brand moat? Must be tricky or or maybe harder in some ways to measure if maybe a marketplace is working, right? And you're seeing like the demand getting pulled to the actual website or you know marketplace. How do you measure brand moat in your and maybe and maybe like some examples about how, how maybe this has shifted not only consumer, but it could be even like a you know on the B2B side too. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's such a great question. I mean, I think it, it is it is really difficult to to pin down because it's one of those things, and that, I think maybe that's the reason why some investors will shy a bit away from this because I think it is it can be difficult to quantify. You know, particularly at the the earlier stage side, like it is a bit of a mix of we call it you know art and science, right? The brand magic is is it is a little bit like you you know it when you see it, but you, it's difficult to put it into words. One of the metrics we do use sort of internally, we we call it sort of customer love, which is really looking at you know the trying to understand you know does it does this company and the founders really understand like the community that they're speaking to? Are they doing a great job of fostering that community? Are people engaging with the brand not just from a, at a transactional level, but at a sort of deeper you know more or emotional type of level, and there, where there's sort of different types of metrics, we, we might look at that. You know, it's like around cohort um, performance and repeat, and how much of your sales are, are organic or versus ref, you know, and referral. I think we we are quite you know conscious of generally not over relying on paid performance marketing channels, but looking at all these other things. I think it's it's always a little little bit of you know it's it's always a, it can be a difficult one to pin down. But then you sometimes you know in the early I mean sometimes for early stage companies we we look at all of the the comments people leave on the Instagram or TikTok pages because based on the emojis, you know, when it's the heart emoji or the star emoji, like you can just, and they'll tag their friends, like you can see that that's, there is that like brand moat and love. And maybe what's one example from our own portfolio, it's this company called uh, Majuri. I don't know if you've, you've heard of them. It's a company that uh, came, uh, that was uh, in, in Toronto that actually one of my, my former colleagues actually found initially on, on Instagram and they are the modern jewelry brand um, and have, you know, just developed over time, you know, this sort of really known for bringing these like accessible, high quality, like very wearable pieces to millennial and women, but also, you know, some older generation, some younger generation. How do you think as well, um, because we've had a couple investors on the show that invested in Peloton, I would say regarding, you know, category creators, because I think that there's there's no doubt that when, when it comes to connected fitness, that Peloton really was, you know, the winner there, at least the first winner, right? I mean, there's a lot, a lot of other companies that are obviously doing pretty well. When you think about category kind of creators, when you're looking to invest, where I'd imagine Tam, it's really kind of hard to measure it or to really quite understand because if you took the market of you know connected fitness back then, like I had on, for example, when Eric Paley was on and talking about Fitbit, where like the market for you know wearables when they came out was it was pretty pioneering. When you're an investor. How important is TAM? How do you think about market sizing in general? Since I'd imagine that this is kind of a tricky area, especially in the early stages, if you want to seek true innovation. You know, we've seen it a lot also in the food space. So we, we've invested quite a lot in, well, both on the food delivery side, but also in, in you know, newer food formats. So we, we've been invested in... Um, 
and a company called All Plants here in the UK, which does vegan um, meal, frozen meals that are delivered. We were um, also lucky to be investors in, in Oatly, um, you know, founded in Sweden. And it's, yeah, for a lot of these things where there is a, a there is sort of ongoing transformation and a shift of of consumer preferences and behavior, it's really hard to tell. So you, you can you can look at, I mean, taking Oatly example, when they started, there was no oat milk market at all. You know, it was probably like 10, 10 million or something like that. Um, so they really, much like Peloton, they really created that. And so, you know, you can look at adjacent forms of spending, right? Which is like, you know, in that case, like, okay, what is the overall dairy market side, which is 99% regular cow's milk. And then, you know, you also look at some of the growth of like other alternative milks where it's almonds. And so can you kind of like pick apart and kind of and kind of take away some of that market share from like the dairy market in this case? Yeah, exactly. And the same with, with Peloton, right? You sort of look at, okay, what are people generally spending on, on fitness, health and fitness? And, and how much do people care about this? And, you know, how, you know, can they take more and more of that, that share over time? Those are some ways to triangulate. But sometimes, you know, there, there, it's also, it is a little bit of, I, I think, especially when you're creating those new behaviors, you know, what, what you know, Oatly and, and Peloton, I still think, you know, have, have done really well is they've just made, they have, like, to your point on the next product, they've just made such a good product that, like, switching from the incumbent to what they're doing is not at all a chore. It's not a, you know, it's a, it, it's a delightful experience, you know, and that's why, you know, Oatly was really successful in the early days because they, they went through baristas who couldn't really do the same level of froth with other forms of alternative milk, like soy or, or almond and, and oat milk actually enabled them to make the same product. And so people drank it and said, actually, this tastes great. So like why, you know, if it's, if it's the same cost and it tastes great and it's nutritionally good, you know, and it also helps, you know, save the planet, like why wouldn't I do that? And the same with, you know, Peloton. But I think sometimes you do see products with which are trying to innovate upon incumbent, but like aren't quite good enough or don't quite get to the same level of efficacy. And then you find that like there, it, it doesn't ever quite make it into mainstream adoption. What do you think about scaling a company or starting a company in Europe versus, you know, the US or North America for that matter? But like when you're an investor, what are maybe some of the differences? It could be the types of founders that you meet. It could be how you actually go about, you know, scaling the business. But like, what are maybe some of the differences just in your mind? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. So I think the, I mean, one of the the challenges, but also you know, one of the exciting things about Europe is is it's it's such a it, it's you know, not at all a monolithic call. It's it's so different. Yeah, I know. It's so it's so it's, it's so, it's so diverse, of, right? Which, which is right. you know, which is often a challenge because you know sometimes it's easier for. British companies just expand into the U.S. or even to Canada or Australia, despite the distance, just because culturally and language-wise, it is a little bit a bit more similar rather than they go to France, which is literally you know a two-hour drive or train ride away. It's geographically you know so so much so much closer, but yet it, it's just very different in terms of yeah consumer habits, language, culture, all of that. In Europe, what we find is uh, I think Europe has uh, the landscape has changed a lot over the last you know 10, 20 years. I think you know there was in 20 years ago. You know, you really there were many. I mean, there were there were much fewer um, venture firms. I think the startups at the time were were probably. I mean, the the venture landscape in Europe grew more out of like the traditional private equity type of industry. So a lot of the funds were much more conservative. They were much more sort of financial investors and were operated you know less founder friendly. I think you know over the last you know 10, 20 years, as there have been a number of like really large you know and exciting. 
amazing companies come out of Europe, whether it's, you know, from Spotify and then Klarna and Farfetch. On the consumer side, you also have like, you know, large companies like Adyen, which is doing a, a global checkouts business um, from Amsterdam. You know, I think there's been, that always fuels the ecosystem, right? You, you have a couple of, of large sort of marquee exits. Um, investors get really excited, but also you just have a great base of like the early employees who become either talented founders or angel investors and cycle recycle back into the, the ecosystem. So I think, you know, compared to, to probably, you know, 10, 10 years ago or even like five, six years ago when I first, you know, entered the, the scene here in, in London, I think it's, it's the founders are much more, have gotten more ambitious in Europe. And I think also with COVID, especially the great thing about Europe is, is because everything is so close, you can hire great, you can have a distributed team and you can have hire great talent. I mean, there are some great engineers in you know, places like Poland and Hungary and so you don't need to constrain yourself. And as a result, the, the cost of getting started is often much, much lower than the U.S., especially if you're based on the West Coast or New York. Those are all fascinating, really you know, interesting points. I've had on a couple London investors, and they were saying, too, how typically British companies might look you know, outside of Europe first when it comes to expansion, whether it's the West, but even like, even also like the East as well too. Um, and looking like at different parts of Asia, that's really interesting. Yeah, and I, that's actually a good point because I do think because of that, they, a lot of companies here in Europe designed their product day one to be more global in mind. Whereas I think American companies sometimes suffer a bit from the opposite, which is, you know, the first five, 10 years, you're really US focused because the market there is huge. And then when you do want to expand outside, actually there's, it's much harder than you think. Do you find that consumers in specific European markets favor companies that were started within their country? I would love to kind of hear your take on this. I don't want to stereotype. I mean, I think it's it's interesting. I think it, it, some countries probably do. I mean, the French market is, is notoriously difficult to crack, especially for outsiders. We've had, you know, German companies try to enter. We've had, like, it, British companies, American companies. It It is a very sort of homegrown market, and there's a lot of pride in that. I think the UK market is, is much more open. So, you know, there's, I think, you, it, especially London, it's, it's very diverse and multicultural. But I think also just because, you know, there is a lot of, like, American media and influence, but also uh, so you know other European media and influence, and so I think it, it here it's a very sort of open-minded consumer base. I know you you pay a lot of attention to what's happening in China. Any inspiration at all to what's happening in China, or is it you know so different that it's actually really hard to to kind of think about that? It's such an interesting question. It's also fairly close to my heart because I still have family, you know, extended family there, yeah. and. It's the the kind of the sad thing is I I think with combination of both COVID and what's been happening politically the, within China domestically and also sort of I guess geopolitically globally, it does feel like paths have diverged even more and you know they've made a number of, of government level you know senior government level changes especially towards the tech ecosystem which has made it even harder I would say for Chinese tech to collaborate with Western companies to enter into China, they're still obviously happening, you know, there's, you know, TikTok being one, one you know, TikTok is still owned, owned by ByteDance, which is headquartered in, in Beijing. So obviously there's there's a lot of like exceptions to that, but I think there is, it does feel like the, the things are deviating more. Um, and it, it, I think it is really hard to predict. I think for a long time, I expected sort of live commerce to come 
in a bigger way into both the U.S. and in Western Europe, just because in China it became like live streaming, live commerce, even from 10, probably, well, maybe not 20, 10 years ago, but at least like six, seven years ago has been huge on, on Tmall and, and all the other channels, Pindodola and others. I've seen quite a lot of startups try to, you know, replicate or, you know, take uh, learnings from that and try to have a similar platform here. And it's never really, yeah, it's never really, really taken off. And I, I don't know if that's just because they haven't quite found the right, you know, the product just hasn't, isn't quite there yet. And, you know, no one's found the magical product that will make it sort of just explode. Or if it's just like social behavior is just, is just a bit different. It seems like one of the areas on the e-commerce side of things that, and I'd love your perspective, tell me if I'm, I'm totally wrong here, but that we've, you know, been lagging in is really that like UI um, experience when it comes to e-commerce. Alibaba, Taobao, they were the ones that, you know, put live streaming center stage. And of course, then, you know, adoption probably, you know, happened quite quickly because, and we haven't seen that from on, you know, Amazon, you know, it's not, it's not really a pleasant experience, right? That is totally right. That is totally right. And even Shopify, shopping on Shopify is not really a pleasant experience. It's not like Pindo Dough, which seems, I've never experienced Pindo Dough, uh, <laughs> but I've I've watched a bunch of kind of like YouTube videos and kind of uh, and kind of stuff. And just to see like how it kind of works to, to educate myself, unfortunately, I've never tried it, but like it seems like a much more fun way to, you know, experience shopping and actually to shop, not just, you know, to, not just to buy. Yeah, I think you're right about, I think it, it is really sort of the incumbents Partly it's probably because incumbents haven't really innovated. So you're 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 spot on that you know Alibaba and and, and Taobao from the early days sort of they they've been. I mean if you look at the sort of the way that their homepage that, or, or just their user experience has has innovated across the years, you know both on web uh, desktop and on mobile, it, it's been dramatic. Whereas if you look at the Amazon homepage and the product pages, like it literally it feels like it hasn't really changed at all in the last twenty years. And it's it's you know it's such a static. I mean it's like the least engaging experience and yet you know all of our you know it's like almost 50% of e-commerce spend now is on Amazon so you know I don't know if that means people just don't really want or desire a more engaging experience um, or if it's just because it's you know Amazon is so much better on everything else in terms of like you know price and convenience and all of that that we just you know we're, we're sort of just happy to, to take it out as it is but I think yeah I think the incumbents being sort of those gatekeepers of that has been a big factor there are also like these these I don't know these other elements where like in uh, China this is a cultural stereotype that I'll say, but like every, people really love a good deal. Like social, I mean, this is sort of the, the behavior, you know, it really emerged, kind of tried to kind of leapfrog and went from like this very wet market-based commerce context where, you know, people were, were in the markets, like, you know, negotiating, discounting, yelling, you know, saying, hey, if I buy more, can you give me um, this price to sort of like not skipping supermarkets, but like going from that almost to, to, to e-commerce in many cases. And so a lot of those social elements really, really resonated. And, you know, I have aunts um, and my grandma actually who's passed away, but she never, you know, she's never used a laptop or a computer in there in her life. Um, and she's never really, you know, she just doesn't think about technology. She, but she she would be on those type of channels because she just, you know, she wanted to bid and like find a good deal. I know we've touched on COVID. Um what were some of your learnings throughout these past, you know, two years um, during this COVID period? Yeah, yeah. So I think you know the the, and I think you know one of Mike, you sort of mentioned this earlier, but you know thinking about so what are the opportunities that we we see in 
in consumer more broadly. And I think we we just see, you know, there's been such a massive transformation in terms of the way that people's lifestyles have changed just dramatically over the last 50 years. I mean, I'll just give one small example, but, you know, 50 years ago, 70% of people who were aged between 25 and 35 years old in the U.S. and Western Europe, they 70% of them were living with a spouse and child. And now in 2021, it's less than 30%. So like that style of living has like completely shifted. Uh, and now it's like most, you know, there's like half, like it's a quarter of people who live with roommates. There's like another quarter of people who are living with a partner or a SO, but with without children. There's some part of that who's still living with their family, the parents as well. And so, you know, that's just one small example. But like, you know, that will also have huge transformations in like, you know, how the percentage of freelance population, like how many people are working freelance. And so I think that we see and then, you know, you layer on top of that, like changes in the way that people self-identify. You know, you think about the, you know, the percentage of Gen Z, for example, who identify as like LGBTQ or non-binary. We think like that's, you know, all of those like, changes, like if you compare that to then the existing infrastructure most consumers use, both in terms of like, you know, what we what we eat, what we buy, our education, our housing, our health care, our child care, like none of that is really caught on. So we see like that huge disconnect being a, a huge opportunity, but also then COVID has just accelerated so many of those trends. Um, and it's made, you know, people, you know, even more, in some cases, even more isolated. It's, it's, it's um, certainly, you know, made healthcare, you know, it's put an even bigger strain on healthcare. And so we think a lot of those trends have sort of been, you know, probably leapfrogged three to five years with COVID. And now are, you know, now they're not going to grow at such a crazy rate, but like they're going to kind of sort of stay where they are or continue to grow. Is that hard as an investor since, you know, you you do invest in a, in a bunch of technology companies and you maybe see this massive, you know, gains in penetration or, or gains in the past two years. And you have to almost say to yourself, okay, this is great, but let's like pump the brakes because this is also during like the COVID period. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, you know, there there are some some companies that like wrote, you know, there's like I remember there was like this huge, you know, I mean, I don't want to like name any, but you know, there are like a lot of platforms like Clubhouse, for example, or like you know, there were like a lot of virtual event platforms that were really really big and really popular and during COVID and have definitely sort of lost some of that momentum or or um, engagement afterwards um, as people have you know gone back out into the real world a bit more but I think you know a lot of the ones the trends that we see in terms of like you know increasing digitization of the people that the way that people like for example want to want to receive their 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 health care or um, in, in the way that you know that going back to sort of the more obvious e-commerce examples like that hasn't that that trend hasn't reversed per se it's just to a point, you know, in some cases it might have slowed down. And I think that's where we need to be thoughtful about, okay, what is the what is the shorter term trend and opportunities versus the longer term? And how do we plan? And especially if it's a portfolio company, how can we help them think about the right way to plan for the next, you know, two years to, you know, grow and in, in capital efficient ways versus, you know, investing for longer term opportunities? Got it. What are your thoughts in terms of the fundraising climate today. It seems like you're in a pretty good position since you're just raised 600 million, but I can hear your thoughts. Yeah, no, we are, we feel very lucky to be in this position. So we're, we're definitely open for business uh, for any founders that want to chat. We think it's, Obviously, I think it is tough for founders, but we genuinely do believe that like a lot of great companies have come out of previous downturns. It, it does mean that the, you know, for certain growth stage companies, particularly ones that have like raised at frothy valuations in the past, that like the next twelve to twenty-four months is going to be a period of readjustment and getting back to fundamentals. But we actually think for for earlier stage companies, it's it's a really good environment because you know right, suddenly there's not as much 
competition for for talent. You know, some things things aren't quite as expensive, and I think you know people are also you know more measured in terms of the expectations. You know, you want to see growth, but you also want to see you know certain unit economics, for example. So I think it's going a bit more back to business fundamentals. I think for for us as a firm, actually, we are kind of excited that the slower pace means we get to know founders more. So we we actually found it really hard sometimes in the last you know eighteen months where. You know, you'd sort of meet a great founder, and they'd be like, "Okay, we want a term sheet in two days," or like, you know, you need to make a decision like now because it's such a long-term relationship. I mean, I often joke, half joke to my founders, it's easier to get divorced than to get an investor off your cap table. It's a mutual long-term commitment that you got to actively opt into, and you want to have some dating before you commit. What's one book that's inspired you personally, and one book that's inspired you professionally? Actually, it's it's one book that I would say has inspired me both personally and professionally. Um, but it's a great book called When Breath Becomes Air. Um, it's written by Paul Kalanity. It's a great book. I mean, for me, it was just, I feel like it was so elegantly and graciously written, especially given to the author, you know, he was battling stage four lung cancer while he was also expecting his first baby and being like a resident neurosurgeon. But I think it was just, you know, the, the sort of, I read it was at, well, I was actually pregnant. <laughs> and I just feel like it brought like such a clarity in terms of like finding your purpose in life and prioritizing on the things that matter. So yeah, I really like that. My final question to you is what is the best piece of advice that you've received? Yes. Um, so this one, I'm going to have to credit. So I, I went to um, Stanford for business school um, at GSB, and there's a class there that's sort of a, a bit of a must-have, must-take class, which is called touchy-feely. I think the proper, the actual name of it, it's interpersonal dynamics, but everyone calls it touchy-feely. It's a little bit like group therapy, but one of the biggest sort of I think things that I grew that I took from that class is is really that this sense that like vulnerability actually isn't a weakness and that it's actually it can be a real strength in, in sort of fostering authentic relationships. Um, and that class was a lot about like being able to feel comfortable enough in yourself to bring your authentic self to the outside world as well. And I and I think that's yeah that's been really powerful for me, especially in in the workplace. I used to when I was much younger. I sometimes felt like I had a work persona and a personal life persona, and I think bringing those together has been it's been really great. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Also, just kind of making yourself more vulnerable, right? And yeah. Be, and not being, you know, afraid to kind of share this experience because that actually then deepens the experience. It's yeah. kind of counterintuitive, right? Exactly. In terms of it, yeah, not being afraid to kind of get vulnerable. Yeah, I love that. Susan, thank you so much for your time. This was so much fun. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. What a pleasure. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Susan on the show. I hope you all enjoyed listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 